Hey, this is Aaron Ross, author of From Impossible to Inevitable, How Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Dun, 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 dun. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's working in modern marketing. And don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Aaron Roths, and we're going to talk about the new book he has co-authored with Jason Lemkin, from Impossible to Inevitable, How Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue. Aaron Ross is the number one best-selling author of Predictable Revenue, Turn Your Business into a Sales Machine with the $100 million Best Practices of Salesforce.com, and that book is often referred to as the Sales Bible of Silicon Valley. He co-founded PredictableRevenue.com, a software and consulting company that accelerates outbound sales based on the cold calling 2.0 outbound process that added $100 million in extra revenue at Salesforce.com. He's a co-founder and chief revenue officer at Carb.io, a pipeline automation software company, and is also the co-founder of PredictableUniversity.com. He graduated from Stanford University, lives in Los Angeles with his wife and 12 children, mostly through adoption, in answer to the listener's unasked question about fertility drugs. He loves motorcycles and usually, but not always, keeps a 25 to 30-hour Work with. <laughs> Aaron, congratulations on From Impossible to Inevitable, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm tired just from listening to that, uh, my bio. Well, like. it's, uh, <laughs> it's really exciting to have you. And I had to include that you went to Stanford because I think you're like the eighth author with a Stanford degree on the show. It's, yeah, uh, I, you know. Is there something in the alumni magazine that says, please write marketing and sales books to, to, to all alumni? <laughs> Yeah, no. I mean, look, I'm 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 the first one to tell you that places like Stanford or Harvard, all those degrees are overrated. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe because I live in I've been in the West Coast, but where are you based again, Doug? I'm in Virginia. Mm-hmm. Virginia, okay. Yeah, and you don't. Yeah, I can't say. Maybe we just maybe just think we're so smart. We're like, oh yeah, I could write a book. <laughs> well, all I can say is I appreciate uh, you and your fellow alumni writing so <laughs> many of them. All I have to do is just get hold of the alumni magazine, and I can figure out who I'm going to interview next. Well, you didn't say if they're any good or not, but I'm assuming if you interviewed them, you thought they were. <laughs> yes. You know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so let me start with a quick quote here, and then we'll get into the book. There's never been an easier time to grow a business. Ironically, though, while everyone else around you seems to be crushing their goals, does it feel like a struggle for you? If you needed to triple your revenue in the next year or three, would you know exactly how you would do it? Tripling isn't magic. It's not about the school you went to, luck, or working harder. There's a template that the world's fastest-growing companies follow to achieve and sustain hyper-growth. So, Aaron, I just... Before we get started, I wanted to say I found the book to be much more inspirational than I had somehow anticipated. I, you know, I, I knew it was going to have all the the how to and all I'll that t- sort of I'll thing. Take that, I'll take that as a compliment. I think. Well, you know, it, it, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it, and yeah. it, you know, you got in there and you were, 
you were talking about uh, this idea of compare and despair, and you know, even at the very end, you talked about that there's never been a more there's never been more anxiety, frustration, and depression, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. among CEOs and aspiring entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. than now. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Well, first, okay. So there's something important you said. There's the book has two. There's definitely lots of tactics in the book, marketing tactics or sales tactics. Like very, you know, there's like a there's matrices and. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that we wanted to do that was was different. I, you know, I think some people. I feel like there's some, some a lot of books out there that talk about the human condition and like you know there's the hard thing about hard things. Mm-hmm. There's I don't know, and then there's a lot of books that are super you know like here's how to do a sales call. But you know when this book is about what does it take to grow faster? What does it take to double, triple, or you know 10x how fast you're growing your company? And you know the answer is it needs your, your what do you call it, left brain and right brain. It needs the tactics and to acknowledge that we're all humans doing this together and humans have things like everyone who's listening has some degree of anxiety, frustration, depression, struggle, because you wouldn't look put it this way, which is you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. If you didn't like the people who are pushing to grow, the people who are pushing to succeed by very definition, aren't satisfied with what they're doing today. They want to go bigger, you know, go faster, which again, there's like that, that I don't want to say creative, but there's like that natural tension, and but then we end up feeling like, well, God, this is such a pain in my. I, I'm failing, mm-hmm. or it's so hard, and I, all I see on my Facebook feed or Instagram feed or TechCrunch feed is like everyone who's just sold a company for X, raised X millions of dollars, they hit this kind of growth rate, like press release, and yeah, like it's just why, like, like looking at Facebook on a daily basis, everyone's having these yeah. wonderful lives. Right, and so they're t- they're related. You know, how can you double sales, or how can you do X, Y, Z? But and realize it's going to take not to jump ahead, but you know, a lot of this it's going to take years longer than you want, which yeah. is painful truth number five out of the seven parts of the book. That's right. That's right. So you, you have the seven ingredients of hypergrowth, and let's let's jump into the first one, uh, and that is mm-hmm. you've got that's to the, nail. That's the essential one, especially for marketing. Yeah, yeah, and it's nail a niche. So. Mm-hmm. Can you explain that and, and, and the arc of attention and so forth? Yeah. You know, and actually in this, in this story, I mean, this first part, part one, you know, I include sort of my own background as, as, an, as one of the examples around what it means to nail a niche and what it feels like when you haven't nailed it. You know, and again, each, there's these seven parts, seven painful truths. The first painful truth is that, you know, if you're struggling to grow faster, you know, you might be growing at ten percent a year, trying to get to twenty, or maybe fifty percent to get to a hundred, or maybe you're not growing. But you know, like, if you're struggling, and there's some examples of what that means, especially if you're spending money on marketing or sales in some way, and you're just not seeing the result you think you should. It likely it usually means actually that you're not ready to grow in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Because you have to be in a place to be able to grow before you're going to be able to grow faster, and you're not going to be able to grow faster until you nail a niche. So I'll give you a couple examples. Like for me, so nailing niche ultimately just means that you you know how how what does it take to be able to market or sell like do some sort of outreach, whether it's inbound marketing or it's like to to market or sell to people where there's no prior relationship, mm-hmm. and do it in some sort of predictable way. Right? So companies, especially if you're an agency, anyone who's an agency or services, you generally have grown your business through word of mouth. 
right? Relationships. Mm-hmm. Also, if you're a, a product company, you know, you get to your first few hundred thousand million, maybe 10 million off of organic growth, off of relationships. And what happens is you're like, all right, this is great. We've got to 100,000. We want to get to 200. Or we got to 2 million. Let's get to four. And there's a, this book, this classic book called Crossing the Chasm by this guy Jeffrey Moore. It's a famous one. If you're older than like 40, you probably, 35 or 40, you probably have heard of it, read it. I for sure have. I'm old. Yeah. And he's, he's even got an uh, updated edition out a, a year or two ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and the gist of it is it says hey, there's, you get again to this, you get to initial traction, you get off the ground. And so you can use this called a few hundred thousand to a few million. And then you try to grow, you, you, hit, this, you hit this wall, you hit this plateau. You know, it's, it's chasm. So if you haven't read the book, I would just Google a summary. It's called Crossing the Chasm. But so in the new book, this part one, Nail and Niche, what we explain is it's true. You hit this plateau and then you struggle. And we go through why there's the plateau in the first place and how to get across it. How do you get to the point where you're able to grow? So the, what I mentioned was you, this, there's a huge difference between growing organically through word of mouth whether it's through you know, networking, whether it's through happy customers telling others, whether there's some sort of you know, relationship as a starting point. It could be tenuous. Someone could have found you on Twitter, or it could be more concrete, like a, a real referral. But there's a huge difference between that, again, either using relationships to get leads or to close them, so much easier than when you start to do any kind of like outbound marketing or selling when you're, you're finding ways to reach out to people who've never heard of you, they've never heard of your brand, and to get them interested and to buy something is like a, a dramatically huge, much huger challenge that people realize. They're like, oh, okay, hey, we've, we've gotten to two, three million, and like we're living in San Diego. Okay, let's do some outbound marketing selling. Let's grow. Uh, it shouldn't be that hard. Let's, let's like, oh, like move to San Francisco. And it's not. It's like moving from San Diego to China in terms of this, this huge gap that people vastly underestimate. So that's why they're like three months into some program or a year in, they're like, it's not working. Well, it might take you three years. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned that you haven't crossed over until someone from Iowa buys your stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of it's an example around how do you know if you've nailed a niche? And there's a couple you know, litmus tests. And you did mention this really important idea called the arc of attention. And what we're trying to explain is when you're growing and it's, the growth is based, whether it's on the lead generation or the sales side, is based on you know, sort of using, you need relationships to grow, sort of one side of this arc. That's a very different experience than when you're trying to grow in some way with lead generation sales that don't, don't need relationships as a crutch. Like you always would like relationships, mm-hmm. but you can't depend on them. Right, so this is sort of this arc. And then, you know, the example, like, because a lot of us live in California, like my co-author Jason Lemkin's in the Bay Area, and um, a lot of tech companies and a lot of, it just starts called tech companies, you know, be, get started in startups, start on the coasts. Uh, and there's other cities like some of these metropolitan areas. You know, it's called Chicago or Minneapolis. And, and then, so you'll get this $20 million company in San Francisco. And, or 10 million, or, and they're like growing fast. And you look at their customers, and every customer is some other startup in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're in this like echo chamber. And you're like, okay, well, yes, but can you sell to people? It's like, again, you haven't crossed nailed your niche until someone from Iowa buys is saying, someone who's not part of your little club, 
who doesn't know you, they're not doing you a favor, and like your product or service or thing stands on its own as something that they can understand, they get it, they're interested, and they see the value in it, and they buy it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was the, and then another, another test was saying, hey, look, if you get 10 unaffiliated customers who come in and buy, unaffiliated, they're not like some, through some partner, like partners are great, like I said, word of mouth is great, partners, you want all that, but you're going to be limited with your growth until you can figure out how to find and get interested and sell to people who've never heard of you or your brand. Right. So that's right. the idea is like, how do you get smarter about what does it take to grow? What does it take to be able to be in a position to be able to grow? Where if you spent money on marketing, you're going to get a return. Because a lot of companies, especially earlier stage, but it works with even you know, big companies too, like you'll spend money on marketing or lead generation sales and you don't get anything back because you weren't the right stage. Right, right. There, there was another tactic that you talked about that I thought was really interesting, and you said you absolutely have to do it, and that's the 20 interview rule. Can you explain that one? Yeah. So the 20 interview rule, especially for again, earlier stage companies, but it's really true for any. Now, this, this book is not written for startups. It's not written for big companies. It's written for anyone who wants to grow because you know, we just look at these things that are common. And you know, SAP and Oracle, like we've had clients who are some of the biggest companies in the world, and this is the same problems they have. If it's, I'm nailing a niche. It's just a different problem because instead of trying to find – um, you know, their problem is triangulating. They've got so many products and there are so many geographies that they get so confused that they you know, can't uh, – it's really hard for them to focus. Because really, the nailing, I have nailing a niche is about you want to be a big fish in a small pond. You want to, so it's easy to make the pond smaller than the fish bigger. Mm-hmm. But like, where can you? It means about focusing, not thinking smaller. And right. so this, I want to make sure that this is not. So this is about like really zeroing, zeroing in on what's going to matter. And so, because whether you're a small company or big, it's you know people spend way too much time plotting world conquest in front of a whiteboard. <laughs> right. And looking right. only this, at data, not talking to Yeah, anybody. and looking at spreadsheets, look, like, wow, this is, like, I read this report. I did this PowerPoint. I mean, we've all done it. And like, on the spreadsheet, you know, if we just grow X by, you know, and you, if we just extrapolate out, and it's easier, it's like there's a, there's a lot of, you know, and also, especially when you're busy, you're like, ah, oh, I guess you get an interview set up, and then I got to, like, ask them questions, and I mean, I don't know. So the point is by saying, okay, whether it's 20 or 15, but just get out and talk to people, interview people, and also at different stages. This is not saying, okay, you know, you're SAP and you're launching a new product. You know, go interview 20 people tomorrow. Or if you're a startup, it's saying, look, do two or three or four of these early interviews for stage one, and then you get a little further, do a few more, and you get a little further, you get a few more. So it's like, where, who are you targeting? And then you figure out what your pitch is, and you refine the pitch, and then you do X. It's like just get out and talk to people, interview people, and do it in a, a more recurring way, not in these like one-time big spurts. Right. Like after you interview three people, like the marginal value which you learn for the fourth is really a lot smaller. And and you don't want to interview like your parents or your <laughs> people that are really invested right. in you. No, it's true. Like there's another point in the book, and I don't remember which part, but it says like stop getting so much feedback from people who know you. <laughs> right. Like they're biased. They're not going to give you the, the best feedback. They're, they're going to respond to you, and they're easy. I, like, I do it. <laughs> I, yeah. We all do it, but it's not, don't limit yourself to that because, you know, look, 
it's a lot harder to get feedback from people who don't know you or well. It's, and it's hard to get really, really good feedback. Yeah. I'll be the first one to say it. I, you know, I got feedback for this book, you know, we, and we have a software. You know, it's, I feel like it's really hard to get useful feedback from people. It takes a bit more of an art. But for sure, so in some sense, people who know you are going to be more willing to spend some time doing it, but it's biased. Yeah. And again, this whole idea of when you're selling to people who know you, where there's some sort of referrals, there's relationships, you get away. This is why so many companies have the about statement on their website says something like, we're the most scalable um, network storage social API provider and all this gobbledygook. (laughs) Yeah, because they've never had, they've never been forced to explain themselves to people who didn't know them. They've always had a lot more... You know, people who know you or there's referrals or relationships, they'll give you a lot more slack. Mm-hmm. So you can get away with that kind of like wobbly blah. <laughs> right. That, that goes on in the company break yeah. room. Now, that, that whole part could be an entire separate book, but we want to keep it super, you know, short and like to the point because that's not, that's just, you know, step one. Yeah, yes, absolutely. But all the others that follow, if you can't get that first one, you're you're going to go even further off off track. Let's yeah. talk, let's talk about leads. You know, there are some companies that are relying maybe just on one type, and you describe the three types of leads, which are called seeds, nets, and spears. Yeah. Explain. Well, so this, there's a little bit in the book that's sort of an update and refresh of predictable revenue, right? Right, which came out for something years ago. So this is one of them. This is one of the, the the number one ideas that people loved and you know changed their entire way they thought about lead generation was this idea of these you know three types of leads. And what I had seen in the past is you would have, let's say that you're uh, a VP of marketing and you have a, a CEO, maybe you have a board, and when you're coming to put, say you're going through this phase around, you're saying okay next year we're going to double our leads, obviously so we're going to double our revenue. And they'll go, okay, well, we did $5 million last year or $100 million last year, and it was 10,000 leads. So if, we dub- if we're going to double our revenue, we need twice as many leads. We need 20,000 next year. And, okay, you do that, and then it totally fails. And the reason because, again, there's these different – a lead is not a lead is not a lead. Right? There's these three different types. There's the seeds, nets, and spears. And really it's because the seeds are really all the word-of-mouth leads. And the nets are marketing or uh, any kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's like one to many, right? Any kind of marketing, inbound, outbound, um, mm-hmm. sorry, you know, inbound marketing or it could be like PPC or, and then Spears is outbound prospecting, right? So targeted business or targeted business development. And they're all different, like right? they have their pros and cons, but they have different funnels, different metrics, different characteristics, right? Word of mouth, they're always going to be higher deals, I mean, higher close rates and faster sales cycles because there's pre-existing trust. Mm-hmm. You know, marketing is going to be generally quantity over quality. Right? So a lot more leads, but much lower conversion rates. And then, uh, and of course, there's varieties in there. Like there's could be like webinar. And I mean, there's, you could have many kinds of subcategories, but you know, in general. And then prospecting is going to be generally qual- quality over quantity. So like fewer, but better and bigger leads. Mm-hmm. Right? And the point is that depending on the business you're in, like everyone ultimately should have like all three types. But for some businesses, some work better than the others. And the important thing is when you're, when you're looking at your business, it's to understand that 
Uh, you know, if you had, again, if you got to $10 million last year, but almost all your leads were seeds, right, or word of mouth based, mm-hmm. you don't, to double revenue, you don't need twice as many leads. You might need 15 times as many leads because of the change in conversion rates and the change in, or maybe deal sizes or so on. So it's like understanding the business, understanding uh, which leads work best so that when you're, when you're planning how you're going to grow, you plan appropriately and you can understand uh, sort of like also your strengths. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. again, pros and cons, prospecting, right? That's what I built the outbound team at Salesforce. That's what I do most of my, you know, sort of daily work is like consulting with companies who build outbound prospecting teams or training them through something like Predictable University. But in prospect, here's like pros and cons. Prospecting, fantastic. Could be highly predictable. If you have three people, like there's a client called Acquia that is, was the number one fastest growing company a couple, uh, year and a half ago. And what they did was they had, you know, we helped them build three, like a team of three prospectors. They got some data for, for six months. They're like, wow, each prospector going through the math, the funnel, is going to do 700000 plus in revenue per, per prospector. Let's hire 40. And they added, you know, $30 million in revenue. So you can do that. But the con is outbound prospect is not for everybody. All right, so there's a lot of companies that it's just understanding so again, seeds, nets, and spears. What is going to be strong for you, and how to like plan around it so you're not you don't have these nasty surprises. Things yeah. work out the way. And it seems like there's a lot of companies that might be doing like two of them, like seeds and nets, thinking that's going to be okay, and they don't really have an active outbound uh, prospecting. Yeah. So it's sort of like a a fully balanced diet or a portfolio of of, yep. of lead gen that they need to be thinking about, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm um, I'm only going to have uh, inbound leads. Uh, that's that's going to take care of us. I don't need a sales force." So, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. And so this is where again, generally, if you're like services, um, you know, there's a lot of, or if you're in a crowded market, it's like you're going to depend more on seeds, right? Word of mouth, more on some forms of marketing, like inbound or content marketing. Mm-hmm. And thing paid sort of unpaid stuff will work better, and paid stuff won't will usually struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the one thing that's new, and then there's all the top, all these are sort of updated from predictable revenue. But one thing that's um, new there is, you know, word of mouth is hard to make predictable. Uh, you sort of get what you get. And again, there's pros and cons. Pros, great, the best leads. Con, you know, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. To use a, a phrase from home, but. One thing, you know, in the book with a lot of details on like how do you, like the best way to systematize or make predictable word of mouth is to have a customer success program, right? Or customer success management, you know, system. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, you want to, all this is really, if you can't make something predictable or repeatable, it makes it a lot harder to grow it. That's the goal here. How do you have some sort of systems in place around Figuring out your target, you know, how you nail your niche, and then how you generate leads, and then we'll get to like sales and other things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in the book, you talk about an interesting uh, compare and contrast of demand generation folks and corporate marketing people, particularly as it relates to, you know, let's say a company that's growing and they want to bring in some marketing folks. Can you explain the the changing world of corporate marketing versus demand generation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a short. My uh, my co-founder, he had this. Uh, sorry, co-author Jason. Uh, by the co-author is a guy who started this company, EchoSign, and grew it from zero to more than a hundred million in revenue. And uh, you know, he's super sharp guy. Same thing. He's very inside the Silicon Valley 
thing. I'm not. I'm in LA. I'm like, oh, I'm tired of that. <laughs> but you know, what we see is again, there's a lot of companies. Let's call it, let's say the earlier ones. You know, you're getting started, they hire you know a VP of marketing out of Adobe, right? Someone who's done corporate marketing, where it's, there's like branding and maybe even like billboards. It's more general awareness and, and presence and branding. And, and what they haven't done is now is demand generation, which is very like metrics driven. I'm spending this budget to generate, you know, X budget to generate Y leads with the certain conversion rates and hope and get at least Z revenue. So they're both important, but at different times and for different kinds of companies. And what in the book we're saying is again, the important one for companies who are determined to grow and they want to get, you know, it's called control over their growth rate. The demand generation is generally the one that is the most important by far. It's hard for uh, people. There's this whole shift in marketing from you know, like brand-based marketing to like metrics-driven marketing, mm-hmm. right? and this is like the accelerate. This is an example of it, which is you know the the marketing's function ultimately in the companies we see that are growing fast. Their function is to generate leads and revenue, right? Not to and there's some things that contribute to that. Ultimately, when you when you when you boil it down, unless you're like a really big company, um, and there's a lot more value to things like brand building in, in a lot of different ways. But for a company that's in, like, in hyper-growth or wants to get there, or actually, especially if you're not in hyper-growth and you want to get there, it needs to be like numbers-driven, you know, this is what we're spending, here's what we're getting kinds of marketing. And for a lot of, pe- for a lot of companies, a lot of people, it's new, it's still uncomfortable. And so it's harder for, for people only in corporate marketing to figure out this sort of metrics-driven demand generation and by the way, it's, it is. It's totally confusing. It's, it's overwhelming. To, I don't know what's working. But we said it's usually easy for someone who's done demand generation to pick up some more of the corporate marketing stuff on the other. Yeah. It, you, you, let me just quote from the book. You said, demand generation folks can figure out corporate marketing. Corporate marketing cannot figure out demand generation, period, ever, period. <laughs> and that struck me as you're, you're also putting – your finger on a much larger issue in the marketing world where there's been this very traditional approach which is more akin to corporate marketing and the demand for people who understand demand generation and, and, uh, and are much more analytical, there's a, a dearth, there's a, there's a talent gap out there. So there was a, there was a yeah. couple things going on there that the listeners of this uh, podcast are you know, somewhat attuned to. So, yeah, and there's um, you know, some very specific like, marketing uh, you know, advice we have in there. And we, we, the whole book, we tried to avoid all the there's so much great advice out there today, you know, inbound 101. Like, you can find great marketing advice anywhere. And so we stuck to points and advice and content that is, is more non intuitive or not ob- non obvious stuff that people would see every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, one other question. You, you say that. Where, whether entrepreneurs like to admit, admit it or not, the new enterprise customer and how they buy is a lot like the old enterprise customer and how they bought. What, what's going on there? Well, enterprise, you know, as much as people say, oh, buying has changed, and yeah, it has, you know, because now people, a lot of the buyers can do their own research. They can, they can look at your websites. They can, everybody's in. But you know, it's was, it was been I don't twenty years since people had to. The only way they could see products was you'd have to fly someone in and do like an in-person demo. But ultimately, so some of that's changed. I mean, a lot has changed, but a lot of it hasn't. Where people are still people, and people making decisions still get 
you know, overwhelmed, they still need help. So one of the things that's different is people are more overwhelmed by all this information. Mm-hmm. And so you still, you know, just pumping out more content or tools isn't helpful. It's like what is really going to be the least, like the, the smallest amount of stuff or the best, most, you know, blunt content or, or tools we're going to give to them to help them make decisions as a group. Yes. Right? So it's, a, it's that old back of why change, why now, and why you. And not just the one person, but their their team. Yeah. It's cutting through this overwhelm and anxiety, which you referred to at the very beginning. Yeah, and there's another book uh, that talks a whole lot about just that one part, which is the Challenger customer, which is from the same folks that did Challenger sale. And in, in that, they and he's uh, one of the authors has been on the show, and he, they talk about exactly that, where you the trick is to help them reach consensus. Not to keep shoving more and more product information or you know even more content. There is this overwhelm that um, yep. is even worse than years ago when they just didn't have any information. Yeah, different problem. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's right. It's you give them content, but why? It's don't just. It's not content that's just going to tell them about your stuff or even educate them. It's try to educate them or help them get to the next step in their decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And make it easier for them to to understand, easier for them to decide. There's a mantra in the book. It really started around email, but this, how do you make something simple to understand and easy to act on? That is hard, but that's the goal. (laughs) Yeah. You know, the hard things are really pretty easy to explain. They're just hard for companies to do. So let's start to wrap up. If readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, I think what I would... There's if there's one thing it would be or that seven. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, there's seven. You know, and we didn't really get to some of these, you know, the human journey stuff. But the it's that figuring out how to grow a business is not rocket science. It's not some sort of magic. You know, some people are born entrepreneurs, like a Richard Branson, but most people just figure it out as they go. Just like most, there's probably some of you listening who might have picked up a guitar at age six and could just play it like a magician. But most people who play guitar, some instrument, like you, you know, you say, "Hey, right, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to practice it," and you struggled for a while, and then you got better and better and better. And honestly, growing a business and making money is the same way. You can learn it through practice. It might mean I'm not saying it's easy because for most of you, you probably need to restructure, rethink your entire business model in order to grow a lot faster. Mm-hmm. But it's still possible. I ain't saying it's easy. Because it's not. It can be hard as shit for a lot of this, which is this sort of, it takes years longer than you want. Right? If you quit too early, the only way you can fail is just to quit too early. But you can do it. You can get better. You can grow faster. You can make more money if you just stick to it. And you stick to learning and practicing, getting out of your comfort zone with it. Right? Because comfort is the enemy of growth. Yes. And as soon as you're comfortable, you stop learning, you stop, you know, you're, and you're, you're plateaued. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sort of sucks to say. It's like saying happiness is the enemy of happiness. Like what? <laughs> it's like short-term happiness can be the enemy of long-term happiness. Like God, that's so frustrating. Yeah, yeah. But you, you, you do talk about how comfort is the enemy of growth, and you also mentioned that your biggest competition is inertia. <laughs> so yeah, I guess when you're you're feeling fat and happy, you're you're uh, you're not going to stay that way uh, very long. So what <laughs> what books have inspired your working career? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I think I got to go back. I actually haven't really read business books for years regularly. 
Um, I think between getting so many kids, I just, I don't have the brain. I'm like, my brain is on output, not input Yeah, that yeah. way. I like fiction books, but you know, I, I think back in terms of the whole sales and growth career, there was three, there's like two business books that really were very influential. And I'm sure there were more, but the two that sort of come to mind, one was called the Toyota, the Toyota way. Mm-hmm. And the way I took that, I mean, this idea of systematized lean manufacturing was what I generally applied to with sales and growth. That was one. And that was, I don't know, this 20 years ago, this book came out, but still, it was great. I loved it. And another book called Wooden, which is about John Wooden, the UCLA basketball coach. And that was really sort of like the man. So the Toyota way was like my process, like system, like as an engineer, like the inspiration for like systematizing sales and marketing. Mm-hmm. Wooden was really around how to think about management and working with people and creating self-managing teams. Uh, super great. I mean, that was, uh, and I read that, you know, yeah, a long time ago. So those are two. But it's and the stuck. last one I just, yeah, it did. And the last one is just like a great life book because, again, we're, we're humans. We're dealing with humans. Um, how do we deal with just life? And there's a lot of, so many good books. But the one I think is just a classic and really changed the way I thought about lots of things was The Four Agreements. That was a, those are those are three that are really, um, especially that time of changing the way I thought about growth and what it took to make money from. I don't know; it just sort of happened in some way. Versus, okay, there's a way to make this systematic mm-hmm. and to like deal with the ups and downs as part of that because there are ups and downs. Were, were those three books? That's great. I, as soon as we get off, I'm going to be uh, jumping onto Amazon here. I have not read any of yeah. those, so um, now I got to get to work. They're all completely different than my book, but yeah, that's the point. There's no other. I don't think there's any book yet, a business book that's like the or from impossible to inevitable book, and that was sort of on purpose. Mm-hmm. Are Are there any recent or upcoming books you're looking forward to that you recommend or you're looking forward to reading? Uh, you know, the only one I would mention here, and it's partly serious and partly self-serving, is that my wife put out a book yesterday called Zombie Princess. And I don't have any business books I'm looking forward to reading. It's like if I if I read books, I'd want to read Gary Vee's, I think, for example. Uh-huh. His new one? But his new one, I you know, I I sort of I don't really follow a lot of people even on social media blogs, but I'm like I, he seems he's a good dude. He's smart plus he seems real. Uh but my wife put out it's really if you have kids from like 6 to 8, it's called Zombie Princess. I think it's actually hard to find on it's on Amazon, but it's like this little short book. It's really cool. It's a funny book and it try to helps inspire well, I don't know, I'll just let you see it. But it's well, called we'll Zombie. Make sure Princess. to put a link uh, a yeah. link. Awesome. I mean yeah, that's that's great. Is, is she available? Can we just go ahead and interview her? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> so how best can listeners find out more about you and your book, Aaron? Uh, I would start with, you know, if you haven't I get this book, question like have you know, should I read Predictable Revenue first or From Impossible to Inevitable? And for sure, you start with From Impossible to Inevitable, which is from impossible.com. Like that's the, sequ- that's the prequel and the sequel to Predictable Revenue. They're totally different books. Predictable Revenue is a sales book. So if you have sales and you're trying to grow it, yep, that's where to go. But From Impossible to Inevitable is the best place to start, from impossible.com. Okay. Uh, and I'm also easy to find on LinkedIn and other places in terms of you know, outreach, but that's the website I would, start, I would go to first. Okay, super. We'll make sure to uh, send the listeners there. So the name of the book is From Impossible to Inevitable. 
How Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue. The authors are Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin. Aaron, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Douglas. It was a really pleasure. And that closes the book on episode 67 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for show notes, free resources, and marketing guides. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. Again, that's marketingbookpodcast.com. I love hearing from listeners like you, so tweet me up at hashtag marketingbook. Do you have a question or feedback on the show? Just hop on the Twitter and use hashtag marketingbook. And please join us next time as we talk with Charlie Pownell about his new book, Managing Online Reputation, How to Protect Your Company on Social Media. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Seeds, nuts, and spears. Uh, or, well, seeds, nets, and spears. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, close enough. It's close enough. Seeds.